I love that last song that we sang, but I can't keep my mouth shut any longer. I have a bone to pick with Hillsong. Whom? <laughs> whom the sun sets free? Who the sun sets free? I'm that guy. Like, my, ask my kids. I've been doing this to them since they could speak in my house, so I'm totally unbearable to live with. Whom, Hillsong? Whom the sun sets free? It's not Rob's fault. Hillsong wrote it that way. Maybe it's because they're from Australia. I don't know. Like, I don't know if they, maybe they have grammar. It's different in Australia. Maybe they speak English differently there, but whom? You know you just ruined that. <laughs> <laughs> I still love the song. It's, it's a great song. Whom? We better pray. Let's pray. <laughs> God, thank you for, uh, for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you have set us free. Um, thank you that, uh, that, that, we can, uh, that we can walk in the freedom that you give us. Uh, and thank you for giving us uh, instructions. Thank you for giving us a picture of what it looks like to live in that freedom. Uh, Father, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, uh, we're continuing our series from the book of Galatians this morning, and uh, we finally made it to the last chapter. Finally, after all summer long, we, we've made it to the last chapter of Galatians. We'll finish the book next Sunday. Uh, and last week, we looked at this, this inner battle that we faced between the flesh and the spirit. And Paul challenged us last week in chapter five to walk by the spirit, to, to keep in step with the spirit. Um, and I think as I was thinking about it this week, I think it's safe to say that we don't walk nearly as much as the Galatians did. Um, back, back in the day, there was a lot of walking. I feel like uh, no matter how much you walk, you probably don't walk as much as they did in the first century. They, they walked everywhere. Uh, so the idea of walking in the Spirit gets a little lost on us, I think. Uh, this idea of walking in the Spirit and keeping it in step with the Spirit. Um, but I think it might help to think like you're in a huge city. Have you guys visited a big city? Chicago, uh, New York, something like that. My brother lives in Chicago. And I'll tell you what, man, he walks all over the place, walks everywhere. And I know I'm not in the best shape of my life, which I know is shocking to you, but, uh, but trying to keep up with my brother makes me want to take a nap. Like just walking around, the idea of walking around Chicago, and, and he takes trains and buses and everything, and, and, and sometimes Ubers and taxis and things, but there's always a ton of walking from, you know, from the train to the bus station and from the bus to the, you know, the, the bus doesn't go right to the door of where the building that he works in. He's got to walk a lot. And man, everywhere in the city takes a lot of walking. And, uh, and I found this out firsthand. Uh, I mean, I've visited Chicago before and everything, but my family took a, a trip out to the East Coast a couple years ago. Um, and, uh, and man, there's a lot of walking uh, in, in the cities, in Washington, D.C., and, uh, and Boston, and, and, and cities like that. Sarah's Fitbit uh, logged 105 miles of walking over the course of 12 days. Uh, and so if you're doing math quickly in your head, that's just under nine miles a day for 12 days in a row uh, is what I subjected my, my children to doing. Um, and man, we walked all over the place and it was great, but man, I was tired. 105 miles, by the way, I looked on, uh, on Google Maps this morning and I'm like, oh, this will be great. I'll tell them exactly how far it is. 105 miles in any direction is just a field, but to give you like a sense of like close to it, it's 76 miles from here to Peoria. So it's way, we've walked way further than that, like from here to Peoria. It's like 137 miles from here to St. Louis. So we walked not quite as far as you need to walk to get to St. Louis. So think somewhere between walking from here to Peoria or walking here to St. Louis. Somewhere in the middle of that range is how, how far we walked over the course of 12 days. And um, man, it was a lot. And the day that we were in Boston was the day that we walked the most. We walked 14 miles that day, 14 miles in one day uh, in the city of Boston. 
because throughout that city, there's a path. It's super cool. Um, I thought it was anyway, I don't know my kids did, but there's this path that called the Freedom Trail and it's marked out by brick and stone in the sidewalks and in the streets and you follow this path of brick and stone throughout the city and it will lead you on this like, walking tour by 16 different historical landmarks, cemeteries and churches and meeting houses and, and you know, all, all these things that, that flesh out the history of the American Revolution and I thought it was great um, because we weren't wandering around the city aimlessly, we had this path to follow. Uh, we walked in, in step with the trail and it led us to all these cool historical sites. Um, and I think that's the idea. That's what it's like to walk in the spirit, that we're not just wandering around aimlessly through life. We, we're following this path. We're following uh, the, the, the way that, that God's laid out for us. So indulge me for, for this other example. Have you, have you ever seen a, a small child or maybe like a small pet uh, try to navigate deep snow? Because I think it's really funny. Like, I'm that guy that has no heart or compassion, and so they step off the porch, and then there's a poof of snow, and then they're gone, and I think it's hilarious. And then, like, my wife's like, oh, we gotta rescue the kid. I'm like, eh, they won't, they, won't, they won't freeze in 10 seconds. And so, like, it's funny, um, because, but eventually kids and animals, even, you know, even your pets learn that if they step in the footprints, like if there's footprints already in the snow, if they step in the footprints that have already been made, they don't sink. Or at least not as far, you know, they don't disappear. And I think that's what it's like. That's what it's like to walk in step with the Spirit. We, we step where the Spirit steps. We, we step in the footprints um, that, that the Spirit's led for us. I don't know if you guys have tried cross-country skiing. Um, I'm from Michigan, and so it's like a requirement. Um, but, uh, but I tried it for the first time like 15 years ago. And uh, my friend convinced me to go with him, and we thought it was a great idea. Uh, and, and I'd been skiing before. I grew up in Michigan. We, we ski. Uh, and I always like skiing. Skiing's, I think skiing's fun. But um, cross-country skiing, I discovered, isn't really skiing. It's like work. Like super hard work. Like regular skiing, there's a hill and gravity does the work. Um, and then if you don't know how to stop, like, grav- like then, you ha- then the doctor does the work. But, <laughs> but in cross-country skiing, it's just work. It's like trying to walk through mud without picking up your feet. That's what cross-country skiing is like. And it wasn't fun at all. We got like a half mile away from the lodge. I'm like, yeah, I'm done. This isn't my deal. I'm going back. And so what I didn't know, or I guess should have figured out with common sense, is that um, you can't just walk back. The cross-country skis actually keep you on top of the snow. And, uh, and I didn't think about this. And so I unclipped my, my foot from my ski. I was going to walk back because skiing is ridiculous. I don't want to drag these stupid long skis back to the lodge. So I unclipped my foot from the ski and I stepped like I was going to walk. So the snow in northern Michigan gets deep. And it's just so happened that at this point and this particular year, there were five feet of snow on the ground which is an idiotic idea to go cross-country skiing, by the way, with that much snow on the ground. So I unclipped my foot out of the ski, and I stepped like I was going to walk back. And so the physics and gravity still apply in the winter. I can, I can I, from experience, I can tell you that. So my left foot on the ski stayed, like, on the surface of the snow, but my right foot instantaneously sunk to the hip. And so it was, like, the most awkward, like, painful experience. And how do I get out of this? Like, I can't unclip my other foot and, because then I'm just submerged, right? This isn't five feet, by the way. I didn't go all the way down. And, and so, I'm not as tall as Steve. Steve's five feet's like at the knee. And, 
And so I couldn't unclip and walk back like that was my original plan, but I also couldn't pull my, my other leg out because how? Like my left leg's up here and I've got like ski poles and stuff. I'm putting my hands down and they're just going in and like, what am I supposed to do, right? And so my buddy gets the idea that he's gonna, I'm gonna grab onto his ski pole and he's gonna use his other pole to like drag me through the, the five feet of snow till we could get to a tree um, which we're, it, this was a student retreat that we were on and one of my students, we, we got up there and she's like, oh, the trees are so cute and tiny here in Northern Michigan. I'm like, no, there's five feet of snow. There's five feet of tree under what you can see. So he drags me over the tree and I grabbed onto the tree and like slowly worked my leg out and then clipped it back in the ski and we got back. And it was totally ridiculous. Um, but, but that's kind of the deal. When you don't keep in step with the spirit, like when you don't walk in the footprints, um, it's dangerous, right? You, you end up, when you live in the flesh, when you commit to living in the flesh instead of living God's way, um, you just keep sinking deeper. You just, it's hard to work yourself out. You just can't dig yourself out of that hole on your own. And that's what we talked about last week. We read that what we can expect, we read we, when the Holy Spirit's in control, when we live by the Spirit, we can expect that he grows certain fruit in us. Love and joy and peace and uh, patience, although the NIV changed it to forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The, the, the Spirit grows these things in us. And so that's in Galatians 5. Today, all that to say, in Galatians 6, Paul continues. The same train of thought but he's kind of move, he kind of moves into a little bit of a new area. In Galatians 5, it's kind of individual. When I live my life by the Spirit, when I let the Spirit come in and take over, the Spirit grows these qualities, these things in me. It feels very private. It feels like a me and God thing. And it kind of is, honestly. I mean, you can't really, you know, patience and kindness, uh, you know, love, those are things that are kind of difficult to display with nobody else. Like, you can't, if you, you know, what, if it's only me, what do I have to be patient about? But like, so some of those things inherently involve other people, but Paul just kind of makes it explicit. In, in Galatians 6 when he says, okay, so if you've got a whole group of people that are committed to living in the Spirit, I'm committed that the Spirit, I'm going to live God's way and the Spirit's going to grow this fruit in my life and so are you. If, and if we get together and, and we say worship together and do life together in community, say we become a church and you have all these people that are committed to living the Spirit's way, what should that look like? What does it look like when a group of people are living in the Spirit? So Paul's just kind of moving on. He says, live in the Spirit. The Spirit will grow these things. And then if a group of you gets together and you're all living in the Spirit, this is what should happen. So that gets us the background that we need for Galatians chapter 6. We're going to start at the very beginning. Paul says, brothers and sisters, all you people who are living in the Spirit, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live in the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. I'm like breathing all hard just from like the ski thing. Whew. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word uh, should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. 
Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So, when people who are walking in the Spirit do life together, they, do, they, they live like this. And as, I, as, I look, as I'm studying through this passage, three things really jumped out to me. So those are, that's what we're going to focus on today. They do these three things really well. They, they restore sinners, they accept responsibility, and they serve others. People who are living in the spirit, who get together and do life together, do these three things really well. And I'm gonna, I don't, I don't usually preach this way, um, but I, I just wanna walk through this passage like bit by bit, a little bit at a time, and kinda unpack it together. So, so walk through this with me. Verse one starts with brothers and sisters. Um, Paul's not talking to, to people uh, who are choosing to live in the flesh but people who are committed to living God's way. Brothers and sisters, you guys who are in, uh, you guys who have said, yes, I wanna be part of this family. Brothers and sisters, what are we supposed to do? How should we live? So he goes, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin. Now this isn't caught like, aha, I caught you, <laughs> right? You're not, it's not caught in a sin like we're playing hide and seek. We're not, we're not supposed to go looking for other people's sins so we can catch them doing something wrong. That's not what Paul means. He doesn't mean if you're caught in a sin, you know, someone happens on to you and you're, you're, you're sinning. Jesus is pretty clear that that's not how we should behave. Caught means trapped. It, it means entangled. If, if someone uh, is, you know, hip deep in the snow, right? Someone's caught and trapped in sin. They're tangled up. They can't get out. They're buried. Uh, there's nothing they can do. They can't dig their way out, right? Someone's caught in, this, in sin. Then Paul says, you who live by the Spirit should restore them gently. Now, I want to land here for just a little while because there's kind of a lot here. First of all, it's those who live by the Spirit who are called to restore sinners, now, this makes sense because Paul, the, the idea is if everyone's living by the Spirit, how should we treat one another? But Paul, once again, emphasizes that in order to, to be the one to restore sinners, you have to be living by the Spirit. Now, it also means on the flip side of it that it's not only a select few who Paul's calling to do this. It's not just like the elders and, and ministers, the elders and staff of a church. It's you who live in the Spirit. So this is everybody. This is an all play. This is all of us. You who live in the spirit, uh, we're all called to restore sinners, right? Everyone who lives in submission to the Holy Spirit is called to do this. We're all responsible to look out for one another. That's how we do life together. And we're called to restore sinners. We're called to restore people who are trapped in sin. We're not called to punish them. We're not called to kick them out of church. We're not called to make them feel bad about themselves. We're called to restore them. Dealing with sin in the church, it's not about punishing the guilty because that's God's job. God will handle that. So our job isn't, it's not about punishing the guilty. Our priority should be helping people make things right again, restoring them, getting them back on the right path so that they are walking in step with the Spirit again. We should, we should hand them our ski pole and drag them to the tree, right? We should, we should commit to, 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 to helping them, to, to bringing them where they need to be instead of making them understand the details of everything that they've done that's wrong. That's, they don't need that. And that's, we, we have this tendency, and I, and, and I hate it, but it's in me too. We have this tendency to, to be better at pointing out uh, sins. Than, we're better at that than we are at restoring sinners. Um, but Paul's pretty clear about our job here, that if, if someone's trapped, they don't need me to point out that they're trapped because that's super not helpful, right? 
if you're trapped, like if my buddy, if I'm, I'm hip deep in the snow and he's like, oh man, your leg's in the snow. Thanks. It's cold. I feel it, right? I don't need that. I don't need you to point it out. I'm aware, right? And so like we need more than that. It's, it's not helpful. And so when we do decide to help them, when we do decide, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restore the sinner. I'm going to participate. I'm going to do what Paul says. Paul says we need to do it gently. It's easy to gloss over that word, but it might be the most important word in the whole section. Gently. I don't know if you recall, but gentleness is one of the fruit, one of the, fruit of the Spirit from the last chapter in Galatians 5. It's one of the things that the Spirit will grow in us if we keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And gentleness doesn't mean that we pretend like sin is okay um, or we ignore it like, a, like it, it's not a problem. Like, I think gentleness brings this kind of image to mind of, of kind of being like wishy-washy or, or weak or something like that. And that's not, that's not what this is. It, it, doesn't mean that, it also doesn't mean that we tiptoe around to spare feelings, by the way. Um, I mean, we're not offending people on purpose, but gentleness doesn't necessarily mean that we have to like, oh, I, maybe I'll say the wrong thing. Gentleness, it's not about being quiet and being timid and being scared. It's about being clear. Gentleness is about being clear that my intention is to help you and not harm you. I'm here to help, not hurt. That's what it means to be gentle. It's the way that Jesus responded to people who were trapped in sin. When Jesus uh, happened upon someone trapped in sin, like the woman caught in adultery, you remember that story? Uh, where, where they dragged this woman out. Where was the guy, by the way? They only dragged the woman out. The last time I checked, it takes two people to commit adultery. But anyway, they, uh, they dragged the woman out, right? And, and she's there, like, in all her glory, in the street, and there's this group, of, and they're ready to like throw rocks at her because of the sin that she's committed. And Jesus bends down and writes in the dirt. I'm like, what did he write? I don't know. He's like drawing cartoons. Who knows? We don't. We don't. Um, and he wrote something in the dirt. And then Jesus stands up, right? And he says, uh, "Let the one who is without sin throw the first stone." And like, I, I love this passage because the older the older people left first. They realized it first. Like, oh, that's not me. And then, like, on to the younger people who are all fired up, like, yeah, I'm great. And then, like, they saw that, and like, oh, well, if he is a sinner, then I guess I probably am too. And they all leave, and like, only Jesus is there. And he says, hey, is there no one who will condemn you? No one's going to throw rocks at you? And she said, no, it doesn't look like it. And Jesus said, well, then I won't either. He could have. I mean, he met the criteria, right? He was without sin. He could have, but he chose not to do that. So he, he treated her with gentleness uh, in her sin. He didn't tiptoe around it. He didn't act like she didn't sin. He didn't, because then, then after that, he said, don't do this anymore. Like, that was kind of, he's like, I'm not going to throw a rock at you, but also don't do this anymore. And, and that happened again, like with the Samaritan woman at the well. I don't know if you remember that story, that Jesus meets this woman, and they're having a conversation at the well. And, uh, and he points out to her eventually that, you know, she, she's like, well, I, I don't currently live with my husband because he's like, go home and tell your husband. And he's like, yeah, you're right. You don't. You, you know, you've had like, I can't remember the number. You have a bunch of husbands and the guy you're living with right now isn't even your husband. That doesn't sound gentle. That sounds super confrontational, right? And, but, but the woman didn't like get all upset and like throw her bucket of water in Jesus' face from the well. She, she understood the heart of where he was coming from. Jesus treated her with gentleness because he was clear that he intended to help and not harm her. And that's what it means. That's, Jesus wasn't interested in seeing people punished for their sin. He was interested in seeing people healed, in, in, in seeing people whole, in releasing people from the prison, from, from, from being trapped in their sin. So we should, we should gently restore people who are trapped in sin.
All right, so that's verse one. (laughs) So then Paul says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. So he gets real practical here. The, The way we gently restore someone who's trapped in sin is by carrying each other's burdens. It's not enough just to point out problems, not enough just to point out people's sins. We, we have to carry the responsibility of helping the trapped person to get free from the sin that entangled them. Um, this, is, this is hard. This is the hard part. This is the part where you walk alongside a person for a long time, not just like, oh, I see you've done something wrong. You should work on that. Like, this is, I'm, I'm responsible to walk with you as you're working on that, as you're submitting to the Spirit. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if you're not willing to carry the burden, you probably shouldn't be the one to point out the sin. If you're not willing to carry the burden with the person, then you probably shouldn't be the one pointing out the sin. You should leave that for someone who's willing to do this, someone who's willing to, to carry each other's burdens, because that, that will be productive. That's how you, you, you restore people gently. Jesus told the story in, in Luke 10. It illustrates this really well. Um, it's, it's a story about this guy that was uh, out traveling along a, a country road, and he got attacked by robbers who, uh, who took everything he had and beat him almost to death. And, uh, and these, two, these two guys, a priest and a Levite, sounds like a joke, right? A priest and a Levite walk by, and they see him, and they cross over to the other side of the street, uh, which is surprising because in that culture, like, those are the people that you figure, oh, surely they'll help. Uh, and they didn't, and that was Jesus' point, right? They crossed over to the other side. They, they saw a dying man, and they said, you know, I've, I've got too much to do. I'm too busy. And then a Samaritan uh, saw the man, and again, Jesus' point, because that would have, uh, you know, it doesn't do much to us, but that would have uh, upset his, the people hearing him, uh, that, uh, you know, Samaritans are, are not my neighbor. Uh, that's the question he was answering, right? Samaritans are, uh, you know, we're, we're against them, and Jesus makes the Samaritan a hero because he's good like that, and, and so the Samaritan sees the guy. He decides to help. He, he bandaged his wounds, and he gave him a ride to the nearest inn, and he took care of him personally. You see that in the story that it wasn't just like, all right, he's at the hospital. Sweet. No, he, like, he stayed. He took care of him personally, and then the next day, so like he stayed overnight with him. Then it says the next day, he paid the innkeeper some money, um, which am- amounted to almost two weeks worth of expenses. He paid the innkeeper enough for, for like two weeks so this guy could stay there and heal and get better. Um, and, then he, and then he told the guy that he would come back and he told him to keep track of any extra medical expenses that like are beyond what he paid and he would come back and he'd cover those too. That's carry each other's burdens. That's what it is. You carry each other's burdens. You walk with the person further than you even think you maybe should. We carry each other's burdens when, when we live in the Spirit. Because at the end of that story, Jesus asked which one of these guys was the neighbor, uh, which is the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers. And I mean, the answer is pretty clear. And then he told his audience, go and do likewise. Be like that. Be, be the Samaritan. When you see someone trapped in sin, when you see someone bloody and dying on the side of the road, don't cross over to the other side and act like you didn't notice it. Approach them in a spirit of gentleness and do whatever you can to help. And then, and then commit to walking along with them in their recovery until they're no longer trapped in their sin. That's what it means. That's what it means to carry each other's burdens. It means paying close enough attention to the people around you that you notice when they're trapped in sin. See, that one got me this week as I thought through that. It's hard enough, like the instruction's hard enough, but 
I don't even sometimes know. I'm so caught up in my own stuff and in my own world, I don't even know sometimes when the people around me are trapped in sin. And how, so how can I help? How can I carry burdens if, if I don't even know? We gotta pay close enough attention to the, to the community, to the people around us, to know when they're trapped. And it means crossing the road to, to, to point out their situation, yeah, but, but not to punish them or make them feel guilty, but to help them get back up again. Um, it, it means walking with them as they heal. And, and allowing the Spirit to free them from their sin, no matter how long it might take. See, God doesn't say, like, you've got to save your neighbor, you've got to rescue your neighbor. That's God's job. The Holy Spirit will do that. But he says, carry each other's burdens. Walk long enough with one another so that you're not alone, so that you're not condemning people to try to get out of their trappedness by themselves. So before we move on with Galatians, I promise the rest of this goes quick, but before we move on with Galatians, I want to look at this from the other side for a minute. Because this is the hard part. Like, this is the hardest of the three, by far. Like, how do I restore someone? How do I do this? How do I participate in, in this work of restoration? So I want to look at it from the other side for a minute. What if you're the one who's trapped in sin and someone comes to you like this text says? If you're the one who's trapped in sin and somebody comes to you, because nobody's perfect. We all fall into sinful behaviors. It's not inconceivable that, that you would become trapped in sin. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't think it's only me, but I, could, I can honestly look back through my life and point to times when I was, when I was trapped in sin. And so it's not, it's not inconceivable that this could happen, that someone could come to you. So that happens, and, and so what do you do? Well, uh, I, I want to give you just a couple things, a couple cautions. So first, you're going to want to try to find people who will agree with you and disagree with the person who's coming to you about your sin. So don't do that. It's gonna be your instinct. You're gonna want to go out and build a coalition against the person who, you're gonna get defensive, right? And you're gonna go find people to be in your corner and like, yeah, you're right. How dare they say that about you? And you're gonna, you're gonna find all these people and then you can dismiss it because like, yeah, they're just a jerk. Well, not if they're living in the spirit. And not if they're doing it the way Paul said to do it. Not if they came to you gently. Not if they're willing to carry your burden. They might not be a jerk. They might be sent by the Holy Spirit. So careful before you just dismiss it out of hand. Go find some people that you trust. People who aren't afraid to tell you the truth. And ask them if they see the same thing in you. Hey, this so-and-so just came to me. And they said this. Can you believe it? But then when you get over your like, righteous indignation, is it true? Is any of it true? Like, do you see that in me? Now, don't go to people who are going to be like, in your corner and like, ready to fight. Go to people who will tell you the truth. I hope you have people like that in your life. People you trust to, to be honest with you and speak truth to you even, even when it hurts you. Because those are the kind of people we need to surround ourselves with. Those are the kind of people that, that we're called to be as we live in the Spirit. People who will gently restore, right? So surround yourself with people you love and people who love you enough to speak truth to you and not just say what you want to hear and like gang up on, on the person who's come to you. And then the other thing you're going to want to do is you're going to want to try to find a sin in them, to like even the scales. Because you're defensive, right? Like how dare you say that about me when you are whatever, right? You're a gossip or you're you know, horrible or you use incorrect grammar and music. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. So, 
You're going to want to do that. Maybe not that, but you're going to want to find a sin in them too. And don't do that either. That's not, that's not going to help either. If you look hard enough, you'll find it. You'll find an area where they fall short. And look, maybe you should call them on it. Because this passage does say that. Like maybe you should. Maybe it's something that's a, a big enough deal in their life that you should come to them and, and carry their burdens and, and help to restore them gently. And maybe you should, but that's not the point. Because their sin doesn't change your sin. We think that if we can expose their hypocrisy, it'll let us off the hook, right? So-and-so came to me and said this about me, but can you believe it when they act like this? If we expose their, they're such a hypocrite. How dare they say this about me when they're also not perfect? Well, newsflash, none of us is perfect. We think that if we can point out their hypocrisy, we get off the hook. It's not true. All you do is miss the chance at restoration. All you do is miss the chance of getting out of the trap that you're in. If you're trapped in sin, you need to be open to this. You need to be open to this process of the Spirit using a hypocritical human sinner who is also trying to live in the Spirit to come to you and help to restore you gently. Okay. So when people who are walking in the Spirit do life together, they restore sinners. There's number one. (laughs) As we keep working through Galatians 6, we see the second point. They also accept responsibility. If anyone, Paul says, if anyone thinks they are something when they're not, thanks Paul for, don't sugarcoat that. If anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. So Paul warns us here of a couple dangers that are going to come up as we do life together, as we do this church thing, as we live together, two dangers. First one is pride. When we play the role of the Samaritan, when we restore someone gently by carrying their burden, it's tempting to start thinking a little too highly of ourselves. I've led a bunch of mission trips in my life, and this happens on mission trips all the time. All the time. We swoop in, from our position of privilege in order to share our wisdom and our experience and our money with people who have less than we do and it makes us feel very good about ourselves. And listen, it's good. I mean, I'm not knocking mission work or mission trips. Do, like, there's a reason I keep leading mission trips. It's good and it's important and it's good work, but it can do something in our heart. It can introduce, like it's so subtle, it can introduce this pride in us. It's like, look what I've done. Look how great I am. Look at the work I do for the kingdom of God. I'm so amazing. And Paul says, if you think you're something when you're not, it wasn't me. I didn't, didn't, what did I do? I did nothing. I just followed the Holy Spirit's lead, right? So be careful of this pride, this spiritual pride that can well up in us when we're the one that comes and helps to restore the sinner, when we're the one that goes on the mission trip and helps to meet the need. Be careful that spiritual pride doesn't creep in. And then Paul says, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. And that that comparison, that's the second danger that Paul said, look out for this. When we do life together with others, we compare ourselves to them. We can't help it. It's not, it's not really a conscious choice that we make. It just happens. It's, we're kind of wired up that way as we're in relationship. We evaluate ourselves in, in, in terms of other people around us. We compare ourselves with them. But the reality is that even though you're called to carry each other's burdens and to restore one another gently, 
you're not in a position to tell other people how they should live. Because Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? The Samaritan didn't tell the, the beaten man on the side of the road how to live. He didn't stand there and have a lecture and be like, man, if you had taken a safer road, this wouldn't have happened to you. Because that didn't help, right? He helped him up and helped him heal. And so this idea, this accepting responsibility for ourselves, that's how we defeat these dangers. That's how we defeat the dangers of pride and comparison. Because in the end, each person stands before God for how they lived. The, the way you live your life won't matter at all when I stand in front of God. Comparison's ridiculous when you look at it that way, right? The way you live your life, if I go, like if I'm standing in front of God and, 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 and you know, and I'm like concerned and I'm like, well, yeah, but at least I was better than so-and-so, that's not the standard, right? The way, you, the way you live your life doesn't mean anything when I stand in front of God. I won't be able to excuse my sin by pointing out someone else's sin. Now, I get it. I get that a lot of our patterns of sin carry over from our past. I get that things like our upbringing and our genetics and our past experiences can shape who we are and what we do. I get that a lot of the sins that we get trapped in aren't totally our fault. There's other things that play into them. We didn't just wake up one day and choose, like, I'm going to get trapped in this sin. Like, there's background, and I get it. But the Bible teaches that we, each of us, we are personally responsible for who we are and what we do, regardless of what things contribute to our sinful behaviors. In the end, we're responsible for us. We're called to help one another and carry each other's burdens, but eventually everyone answers to God on their own. So you've got to accept the responsibility and, and not blame other people. Because Paul goes on to say that God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will receive eternal life. The pride that comes from comparing myself to other people is ridiculous when I stand in front of God. There will come a day when God will judge you. I mean, I hate to be the bearer of this bad news. Our culture really doesn't want to hear that. Sorry. There will come a day when God will judge you. And it will be on the basis of your life. Did you live by the Spirit? Did you live by the flesh? We know that works. We know that the things we do don't save us. Our salvation isn't by, we can't earn it. We know that Jesus saves us. We understand that. But the things we do show what's in our hearts. The things we do are a demonstration of what we really believe and who we really are. God accepts us by the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. But then we have to accept God. It's a two-way thing. God accepts us by the sacrifice Jesus made. We accept God by entering into a covenant with him, by committing to live by the Spirit, to live a life of faith and obedience, a life that produces good works in us, a life that, that so saturates us that it affects everything we do, the things that we say, the ways that we treat one, another. It affects everything that we do. 
Because when people who are, who are walking in the spirit do life together, they restore sinners, they accept responsibility, but then ultimately they serve others. This, it, it, we're just, we're inspired to do this. God has done this great work for me. And so it's not, it's not to earn salvation. It's not to repay God some kind of debt that I owe him. It just becomes who I am. I serve others because God serves others. I serve because Jesus served. Paul wraps it up. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Doing good is what it means. When Paul says that, you know, you reap what you sow, so you should sow for the Spirit, doing good is the seed we sow. Doing good is what it means to sow to please the Spirit. And the good that we do extends to all people, regardless of their culture, their nation, their gender. There's no place in the kingdom of God for stereotypes or being selective uh, based on race or any other criteria like that. But, it, but Paul does say we should be especially good to the family of believers. Do good to all people, then he said, but especially to the family of believers, especially to this group that you've decided that you're all going to live in the Spirit, but you're going to do it together. You should especially be good to them. And this is one of the places in the Bible where our church's vision statement comes from, that we are a growing family, journeying together to be more like Jesus. There's no excuse for mistreating a family member, Paul says, especially to those who belong to the family. We're called to serve one another. So life in the spirit, it leads us to serve each other, accept responsibility for our actions, and gently restore people who are trapped in sin by carrying each other's burdens. People who live in the flesh don't do any of those things. But the spirit provides the fruit that we need to live that way. If you're living in the spirit, you've got to be ready to help a brother or sister who is trapped in sin. And you need to be open to someone else coming to you. Someone else who is in the spirit coming and doing the same for you. And if you're living in the spirit, you need to be able to accept responsibility for your own actions without blaming other people through pride or comparison. And if you're living in the spirit, you need to be willing to serve others by doing good to all people. Because Paul says, you will reap what you sow. So it's on us to be careful about what things we're planting in the soil of our life. Those things will lead to a harvest. That's how it works. You plant something, the thing grows, given the right conditions, or that you're not me. <laughs> you plant it, and it grows. It, you reap a harvest, and you, you harvest what you plant. You can't plant corn and get beans. You reap what you sow. So be careful what you sow. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for guidance through the book of Galatians. Thank you for the freedom that you've given us. Um, but thank you that it's not an aimless freedom. Thank you that we're not left just wandering aimlessly uh, around this world that we live in. Thank you that you've given us a path. Thank you that you've given us footsteps. And God, I pray for the strength and the desire in each of us to, to stay in step with the Spirit, to walk where the Spirit leads, um, and not just to do it alone, to, to, to commit to walking together to follow the Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name.